Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Today on the show, we have Pablo Sender, and Pablo is a member of the Theosophical Society, and we had a really wonderful conversation about who we really are, why we're here, and how to find the passion in our life, and so many other deep questions. This is a really profound conversation, so I want you to sit back, relax, and let's get into it. I'd like to welcome to the show, Pablo Sander. How are you doing, Pablo? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very good, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, anytime I hear of a new spiritual practice or teachings that I haven't heard before, I love doing deep dive to see the nuggets of gold that I can mine from those teachings. And we're definitely going to be talking about uh, a new a new kind of, uh, not new, it's been around forever, but new to me. Uh, the, uh, the theological, uh, I can theo, theosophical, theofo, the, theosophical society or theos or the, theosophical. I, I can't say it. Please forgive me. But <laughs> I'm not the first. Even our, even our members have difficulties sometimes pronouncing. <laughs> so. But before we get started, uh, my first question to you is: How did you begin your spiritual journey? Um, I guess I it began when I was. A, a child really uh, because I would wake up and feel that life was empty I couldn't understand why I would wake up in that way so I was about eight or nine so I I started reading some books that my dad had in his library on Atlantis and Egypt uh, and UFOs and um, I guess that began to show me that there were other things in life that you don't normally hear about. Uh, and then as I grew up, I was always interested in philosophy. I read some uh, Western philosophers and I read some of uh, New Age literature, uh, but never found something completely satisfying. So when I was about 20, I I thought that I wanted to learn how to meditate, and uh, I tried reading some books, and uh, I, 
I needed more guidance. So talking to my mom, who was uh, going to yoga, uh, her teacher was a TS member, so she knew about TS stands for Theosophical Society. Uh, so she knew about this organization, but she had never been there. Uh, so talking to her, she said, well, I know about this organization, let's go and maybe they are teaching how to meditate. So she took me there and uh, they were giving a class on meditation at the time. And that's how I, I came across the Theosophical Society. Uh, I was at that time in college doing my, my grad, uh, I, I'm a microbiologist. And I was really attracted to the idea that theosophy proposes of combining religion, philosophy, and science. So that's how I found uh, the, the path that I feel, you know, it's, it has been great in my life. So can you talk a little bit about what the theological, damn it, uh, <laughs> the TS Society is? Yes, uh, the TS has uh, three objects or three goals. The first one is to try to form a, in, in the organization a nucleus uh, of what they called in the 19th century universal brotherhood without any distinction of race, sex, caste, creed, or color. Uh, the idea was that uh, for humanity to be able to live in a, in a healthy way, we need to generate a sense of uh, kinship, brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, tolerance, uh, and really encourage a, a loving relationship with respect to all differences. Uh, so that's the first aim and the society has been uh, especially at the beginning, it was attacked uh, often because uh, it, it normally would break some barriers that were part of the culture of the place. Like in India, people from different castes would come together and eat together, and that was not accepted. Uh, and in other places, similar, similar situations. But I think eventually many people today recognize that that's the way to go. Then there is a second object uh, that encourages the comparative study of religion, philosophy, and science. The idea is that in order to understand life in a deeper way, we need to look at it from all the different avenues of knowledge that humanity has developed, because each avenue has its strengths and its weaknesses. So there is room for a scientific point of view, uh, but we don't need to be limited to the material realm that science researches. Uh, there is room for a, a philosophical approach to humanity and to life and to ourselves, but without being limited to this being just an intellectual speculation. So there is room also for a spiritual or religious approach in which we have these spiritual aspirations, but without being limited by a particular dogma or theology. So that's the idea of the second aim. And the third one is about uh, promoting or encouraging uh, the, the study of the, the hidden laws in life that are unexplained by science, 
like the Theosophical Society was the first one in, in the West in bringing up the idea of karma and, uh, you know, talking about what in the East they know as chakras, etc. Because part of the idea of the Theosophical Society was to bring up this hidden aspect of life and of human beings, which uh, are important to understand our place in life and how we can uh, search for, for, you know, however you, you visualize it, enlightenment or fulfillment or happiness, uh, but from a deeper point of view. So those are the three objects or aims of the Theosophical Society, which are framed in what we call freedom of thought, which is an official uh, declaration, let's say, uh, by the, the General Council of the Society that says that all members have to respect the freedom of thought of other people and there is no discrimination, uh, you know, or, or no, no person has to hold any particular idea, whether theosophical or otherwise, to be a member of the society. So that's more or less the general structure of the organization. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about how science, it seems to be, in recent years specifically, is starting to meet spiritual spirituality in a very profound way with quantum physics and quantum mechanics and it's starting to catch up to ideas that have been around for thousands of years in spiritual texts how does uh how do you how do you like view that and and where do you think this is all going as far as science and spirituality meeting yeah i think it, it's very important that that this happens um, as I said, the, the, actually, the Theosophical Society was the, f the first organization, at least in the West, in modern times, to actually research the interface between science and spirituality. And actually, one of the foundational books that one of the founders of the Theosophical Society wrote, the subtitle is A, Science, A Synthesis of Science and Religion and Philosophy. And she contrasts quite a bit uh, science and spirituality there. And I think it, it took quite a while, but uh, gradually some scientists are beginning to try to look at life in this more, let's say, holistic way. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I, I make emphasis on some scientists because I think the science as a discipline is still quite far from embracing something more spiritual. Normally, we see attempts in individual scientists. Many of them are ostracized because of their attempts, like Rupert Sheldrake, for example, who was one of the, the first ones, I guess, in, in doing this very explicitly. But more and more individual scientists begin to, uh, to see that this is a, an interesting field of, of research. And since science cannot define uh, consciousness, I mean, there is a definition, but not the explanation of how consciousness comes about beyond what we can see in the brain. Uh, there are some scientists that are turning to more 
philosophical or spiritual ways of explaining what consciousness is. And as you mentioned, the field of quantum physics provides some avenues to try and to try to explain consciousness in ways that are not so material. Um, so I think it's hopeful what is happening, but the problem with science, and I, I have a PhD in molecular biology, I, I uh, spent half of my life in a lab because I started with science in high school. Um, and uh, the problem with science is that for something to be accepted as scientific, you need to devise an experiment that can measure that principle that you want to, to propose. So it's, it's quite difficult to measure, to devise means to capture that which is not physical because we are using physical means. So quantum physics may be a way of entering into that realm, but even quantum physics in many aspects is regarded as a philosophy and not as a science right. to scientists, you know, because you can do certain experiments to see if, if what these theories say are true. It's very interesting. It's fascinating what's, what's happening and where it's all going. Uh, I've heard you sp speak of the insightful mind. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yes. Uh, in the theosophical view, there is far more to the human psyche that what we know by means of uh, regular psychology, for example. And I mean regular because, again, in psychology, too, there are new lines uh, of work and theory that are getting closer to the spiritual. But our normal conception at the psychological level of what a human being is, is far more limited than the theosophical view and similarly with science, which talks about the brain. Um, and the idea is that besides this kind of mind, which uses thought as, as the main cognitive tool, what we are doing now is using thought and words to communicate. Um, besides this, there is a deeper aspect of our minds, which can perceive and understand things that thought is not necessarily able to do. Uh, we, we see this in mystics from all religions, uh, when we see, even in our Western tradition, see Plotinus, for example, one of the main characters in the Neoplatonic uh, philosophy, which influenced quite a bit uh, early Christianity. Plotinus was very rational, they would follow the teachings of Plato and, and Pythagoras, uh, but he would always say there is a realm of, of life of human beings that escapes the level of thought and logic. And in our generally in our culture, we think, okay, if there is a realm like that, it is irrational, it is something that maybe miraculous, but it's sobre, uh, supernatural. It doesn't follow the laws of uh, nature or, or logic. But the, the idea in the Theosophical view, which coincides with many mystics, is that there is a higher kind of intelligence that can grasp realities beyond the processes of thought and logic. And then you can present them in a logical way using your thoughts, 
but the perception is beyond the, the, that kind of cognition. And the importance of this is that this is what brings to a person a sense of the reality of the spiritual. Because by mere logic, how are we going to believe that anything exists beyond what the senses bring? Uh, we, we can by logic because thought is based on the senses. Um, but when this higher mind is accessed, uh, then we have real experiences, not imagination. Uh, we have a real uh, insights, realizations that uh, that there is something more and that changes how we live. So then what is the lower mind? The lower mind would be the mind that we normally use um, by means of our thinking, etc., which lower only in terms of uh, philosophical categories, not lower in the sense that is that is uh, not useful. Uh, the lower mind is the one that we use for everyday life. The problem is that if we are limited to that, then um, uh, there, there is a whole aspect of the of life and the cosmos that escapes us. And most spiritual traditions have different practices for us to start awakening this other higher mind, uh, which is what um, brings a person in touch with those more spiritual realities, motivations, feelings, uh, thoughts, etc. So it's kind of like connecting to your higher self in, in many ways. Yes. yes, yes, yes. We can put it that in that way. So what are the stages uh, in the consciousness of our mind? I've heard you speak about that. Yes, there are many stages. I mean, all classifications are arbitrary. Uh, so there are many ways of describing anything. But um, one of the descriptions we find in theosophical literature that I find quite useful is that there are different levels of consciousness that we can see in our daily life. And one of them is the mind that is being driven basically by our emotions, our desires. Uh, we see this happens a lot in, let's say, for example, politics. Uh, universities see that many times people support certain things, not because they have thought out policies and the effects of the policies and the causes of that, uh, but rather because they feel first in a certain way, and then they use their minds to justify how they feel. And therefore, uh, uh, those the, the positions of many people are not based on facts or, or rational uh, discourse, they are based on feelings. This happens in religion. This happens in relationships with other people. So that's the level that we would call the desire mind, uh, the level where the mind is a vehicle uh, for our desires, fear, uh, fears, wishes, etc. Now, there is a, a more rational um, state of consciousness, more rational, I mean, that has its own rationality and intelligence, but more rational in the um, typical definition of what rational is. That would be the mind that tries to look at facts uh, independently of how we feel about those facts. Uh, 
Mm. And that's when the lower mind, let's say, is working at, at its best. So we look rationally, we look at the facts, we try to connect the facts in the best possible way, understand it. And that is a mind that is, uh, I think, it, in general, a better guide than a mind that is just uh, an expression of the desires. This doesn't mean that desires are wrong. It's just that uh, desires and emotions uh, are giving us some input about the world, the person, a relationship. Um, but then the mind has, ideally, has to work with that and try to understand those emotions, for example. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, beyond that, there is the mind that is aspiring to something beyond it, because we see that sometimes the intellect um, can can get closed in it in its own world and reject anything that the intellect cannot um, verify or perceive. So there is what we could call the aspiring mind, the mind that is trying to see if there is something more. And that aspiring mind is like a bridge between that higher mind that we described earlier and the, the more concrete mind. So the aspiring mind is perhaps a, the, that, that mind that is trying to search for more, trying to see, uh, to challenge the perceptions that come through our senses, trying to aspire to something different. And as we nourish that one, then we start getting in touch with that higher mind, which, uh, you know, from a, a, the point of view of the law of the lower mind or the concrete mind, competition makes sense because right. you can maximize your profits by competing. Uh, the higher mind begins to take into account other things that are connected more to the, the value of human relationships, of, of cooperation, of love of a healthy relationship. Uh, so all those are things that are, are, that are important for the higher mind, not for the lower mind. Uh, so we are all in touch to some degree with all these levels, uh, but we can nourish those that, um, you know, that are higher in this philosophical category, uh, because at least we believe uh, that's what will bring a better life for everybody and we can still be successful but um, using more the higher mind than the, the the selfish mind now we've been talking about the mind a lot can you talk about the power of our thoughts because it's something that we all we're all pretty brutal with ourselves uh in that mind so can you talk a bit about the power of our thoughts and what we can do to hopefully help better our lives with our thoughts yeah absolutely um I think uh, many traditions talk about the fact that uh, we are we become basically what we think about, not in a magical way. Sometimes in the New Age, this is postulated like in a magical way, uh, but this is a very, uh, if if you think about it, a very obvious um, you know conclusion. The fact that we are what we think. And the, the importance of thought, even in Christianity, for example, when you see in the Bible that Jesus says uh, a, a sin is not only in the act, but in thinking about committing the act. 
you know, if you devoid that from the connotations of what sin is, etc., uh, what he's saying there is that if you keep thinking on something, eventually you will start being, uh, have the tendency to act in that way. Because the way we think begins to generate a certain worldview and begins to prepare us for a certain kind of action that eventually we are going to enact externally. So the idea is that um, we, when we start thinking in, in terms of more holistic terms, uh, not only our action changes, but also how we perceive life. Uh, you see people who are uh, very competitive, let's say, they will tend to interpret the whole world and all relationships in a transactional way. Uh, this is only natural because we, the, the way we think shapes our perception. So if you start thinking in other terms, you will start perceiving life in a different way. Uh, we can talk in more esoteric ways about this. There is the idea of what we can call the aura. Uh, the aura is supposed to be some uh, the, the means of perception, just as we have a physical body, we have an emotional body that is part of the aura. That is a, a, the means of perception of, of the, the emotional aspect of life. And similarly, a mental body, which is the means of perception on the mental level. And the idea is that all our thoughts, uh, let's say, taint the way in which our emotional and mental bodies work. So it's like looking with glasses. So if we have uh, thoughts that tend to be uh, benevolent about others and, and about ourselves, that tend to be cooperative, that tend to be, you know, all these kind of things, then that's how we are going to perceive ourselves and others. We can't be, um, you know, judgmental with others without being judgmental to ourselves because right. we use the same mind for both things. So uh, one of the main uh, or, or fundamental practices in the in the theosophical tradition that is proposed to people is to begin to pay attention to how we think, how we interpret things, and to train our minds to choose the kind of thoughts that we are going to hold. Um, and that when we go into a direction that we feel is unhealthy, to develop the ability to say, uh, I don't want to go in that direction. Normally, we don't have any means, you know, we worry, or we think ill of something that um, a per what a person may do. And we need to understand, normally, we don't have means to know what the reality will be. And uh, then we can say, I'm not going to go there before I have to face the situation or the person. So let us stop the mind and focus on something else. Um, and that's a skill. Like anything else, it's a skill. We need to learn to be the masters of our thoughts and not the opposite, to, to be led by, by thoughts and fears, etc. So can we create a reality? Well, we can create a reality psychologically. We are constantly doing that. We are constantly interpreting life in different ways. We see two siblings in the same family can have a completely different experience of how their parents are or how their lives right. uh, are. 
we see in daily life that things that bother a person don't bother the other one. Um, we are, we do create the reality in the sense of how we perceive reality, and uh, and that's very um, very objective in the sense that it does produce a completely different uh, experience of life just by means of our our uh, interpretation. You know, you go to the theater with high expectations because everybody says this is a great movie, and then chances are you are going to be disappointed. If you would have gone without expectations, many times you would, would enjoy the movie more. So you see how just the mental image changes the experience. Now, the idea of changing external objective reality, in general, I would say that in the theosophical tradition, the view tends to be, and I say tends to be, and I, I speak in this way because there is freedom of thought in mm -hmm. the society. So I'm, I'm giving you, you know, my take of my, my studies of and my work. Um, tends to be that the, this idea in the new age that we just think about something and that will immediately manifest and uh, it's kind of overblown. It's a more an oversimplistic interpretation of certain laws in 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 life um it's evident that we can't just turn physical reality uh, because uh, with our thoughts but there are there is the possibility uh, of doing that by highly developed people we know uh, yogis that can precipitate manifest uh, materialize certain things uh, Blavatsky, one of the founders of the Theosophical Society, did that in front of people many times because one of her strategies to challenge the materialistic view of science at the time, uh, she, uh, she had been trained in Tibet for many years, etc., and she had this power. So she would, uh, for example, in India, uh, call people in the government of uh, the colonial government in India and do these demonstrations and say, I want you to explain in a scientific way, how am I able to do this? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, and, and then she would say, this shows that science doesn't know everything about the cosmos and that there is room for a lot of things that science doesn't understand. So that was her strategy. But anyway, the, the point is that highly skilled people can even produce certain things uh, physically. And Blavatsky would explain the mechanism. This is not a miracle. This is all using laws of nature, which most of which science doesn't know uh, yet. Um, but for most people, and thankfully so, most people don't have the power to uh, shape the physical reality in that way. Uh, because if they do, they did, the world would be far more of a chaos than it is. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Now, there is one more aspect to keep in mind, and that is the, the what we call karma. And that is that our present thoughts will generate a different objective reality in our next incarnation. Again, here, if you accept the theory of reincarnation, the idea is that uh, all our thoughts and our desires are kind of 
designing where we are going to uh, be born in our next incarnation, in what circumstances, uh, and therefore they are right now creating our next experience. Um, and it happens many times that people may wish to have power, to have to be, you know, to be influential, to have power, to be the president of something. And they are they are strong thoughts and desires may, may not be enough to produce that in this lifetime. Maybe they don't have enough or the circumstances are not right. But that will lead them in a uh, in a future life to be born in circumstances where they can actually get that. The problem is that if the person is not able, you know, we may want to be a president of anything or organization or country, whatever. Um, and eventually, karma will bring us to that. But if we are not able, we are just going to mess up. And that will produce suffering and that will produce difficulties and that will produce uh, karmic difficulties. And that's how we learn as a soul um, to wish for the right things. You know, this saying, mm -hmm. God punishes people by granting them their desires. <laughs> and so anyway, all these things are really complex. But what I want to point out is that our thoughts are actually creating a different objective uh, reality, but mostly for our future experiences. Now, how do we actualize our potential? In uh, some approach, I mean, there are many ways and all spiritual traditions uh, propose a particular way. Um, and I, uh, in, the, in the Theosophical Society, we value all of them. Now, it's important that there there are different ways because we are all different. Some people are quite intellectual and rational and uh, more devotional approaches don't, don't give them anything. Mm -hmm. Or the opposite, some people may be very devotional and more intellectual approaches uh, are, are not inspiring for them. Uh, other people may be more practical and they want to uh, their spiritual life is about doing and giving and, and helping, etc. So it's great that there are all different kind of approaches. Uh, I think what is, is, uh, often in the theosophical tradition, there is something that is offered, that is this idea of three main areas of our lives that we can start working on. One is the study of um, the study to understand life and human beings better, the study of uh, spiritual uh, literature, also philosophical and even scientific, uh, to the extent that that helps us um, understand ourselves and life. And the study is important because it begins to give you a different view that perhaps you would not have come to by by your own thinking you know for example this idea that many traditions talk about karma this law of causes and effect uh, that says that you know whatever we do we are generating uh, down the you know in time we are generating certain effects that we will have to deal with and therefore we can uh, think of what we do now uh, with a in a wider or broader perspective Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, 
studying that and beginning to reflect on it and look trying to look at your life etc uh, you you begin to have a different view of life the life that the the worldview that we absorb as we grow up is a great worldview for material purposes mm -hmm. but it's not so good for spiritual purposes mm -hmm. so we need to actively um, generate a, or, or discover a different worldview if we are interested in this self-actualization that you said so the study is important but it's not only intellectual study a person we have many scholars that are uh, experts in what the buddha said or, or jesus said and they are neither the buddha nor jesus <laughs> the the in all the knowledge that we incorporate has to be assimilated and for that meditation is important so the study and the meditation by which you try to access that higher mind uh, so that you begin to perceive the reality of these things and not just as as uh, intellectual knowledge that is also important and a third um, let's say practice that is recommended is uh, service of whatever kind service not necessarily limited to the physical giving food to the hungry or things like that uh, but service in the sense of begin to be interested in in the welfare of everybody in in people's happiness in trying to be a, a, a beneficent force in the world um, because that is an essential part of spiritual growth as uh, meditation and study may be very self-centered and that self-centeredness is a barrier to discover our, our higher nature so study meditation and service are normally um, recommended as uh, practices that will help us produce this self-actualization now what is the secret doctrine uh, the secret doctrine is a book that uh, Blavatsky, Helena Blavatsky wrote. Uh, as I mentioned, she was one of the founders of the Theosophical Society. And what she claimed in this book, she said, uh, what I'm doing here is translating some stanzas from a very old book that is uh, kept by her teachers that uh, she met in, in Tibet. And she says, this book is not uh, public, it's not publicly available. They use this book to train their disciples, let's say. Uh, and they allowed me to translate some of these stanzas and publish them. Uh, only a few of them, relatively speaking. I mean, she, she published um, seven stanzas that they have several verses. Uh, and she said there are like 60. Um, and what this book is a two volume book that describes the, the uh, beginning and development of the cosmos in the first book. And in the second book, the beginning and development of uh, humanity on this planet. And the way that these stanzas describe this is a way that um, um, is not only from a physical point of view, but it's also from a spiritual point of view, from a psychic point of view. It, it, it tries to encompass 
all the levels in the cosmos, you know, spiritual and, and intellectual and moral and psychic and physical. Uh, so it's a it's a quite complex book to read. I just finished a, a book that will be published uh, next month that is called Approaching the Secret Doctrine, where I, I work on how to study this book and the main the main topics and then uh, some practical uh, practices based on these teachings. Uh, and the, the book is fascinating, but it's not easy to study by on your own. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, and basically gives you a, a different view of life, the purpose of life, the constitution of the cosmos, and human beings and, and the journey, why we are alive and where we are going. So that's more or less what she tried to cover there. And she called it the secret doctrine because it was based on these stanzas that she claimed uh, her teachers had and they are secret. So that's why she called it in that way. It's good marketing too, for that matter. Yes, it is. <laughs> the book was sold far before she could even publish it and it has been uh, in print uh, ever since uh, that there are, you know, uh, scholars in, in esotericism, uh, they regard the secret doctrine as the, the most influential book in esotericism. And it's, 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 it's fascinating. Um, my final question is how can we expand our consciousness and awaken in this life? Cause we keep coming back and back to learn lessons as a, Reincarnate, reincarnated soul, but is there any tips that you have for us to to expand our consciousness now and awaken now so we might not have to come back the next time? Yeah. Yes, besides the, those general uh, practices of study, meditation, and service, uh, there are there are things in in you know there are many practices that we can use. Um, many of them I, I have a class that i have been given for about 10 years uh, weekly class that is based on uh, this uh, the, the practical aspect of theosophical literature and i give my students uh, an exercise uh, every week uh, to you know in, on different aspects of the spiritual life and uh, so there is a lot that can be done, uh, in particular with the idea of expanding our consciousness. One of the main problems that we have is that our body and our senses are like an anchor for our consciousness. We perceive, we, we normally perceive only through the brain and the senses, mm. or mostly we have other perceptions what we called gut feelings and intuitions and inspirations. They come from other aspects of our nature, but for the most part, we perceive through the body. And that keeps our awareness confined. If you study the experiences of mystics in many traditions, the Christian tradition or the Hindu or, or Taoism, or of course, Buddhism and, and even Native Americans, uh, all their great mystics have at some point the experience that they 
uh, that their consciousness is interpenetrating everything. They feel as being inside a tree, inside a bird that is flying by, uh, in the very ground, as well as within their bodies. And these are common experiences of people that never met. And this happened throughout thousands of years, if we are going to believe what we read in the Vedas and these very old scriptures. So what this indicates is that in all our consciousness, uh, our consciousnesses, let's say, in each of us, there is the possibility of a perception that transcends the body, the use of this particular brain and these particular senses. And we can feel ourselves as being far beyond the physical body. But the, the habit of perceiving only through the physical body uh, is an essential limitation. Uh, so part of, of the practices to expand our consciousness, um, besides the, the necessity to learn about our other aspects, uh, to learn about our spiritual nature, etc., uh, one practice we can do is to try to have the sense of being, um, you know, we always feel we are inside the body. Well, try to feel the opposite. The body is inside you, you as a sphere of consciousness. Because as a sphere of, of consciousness, really, the body is inside us. We are in the whole aura and we can expand that aura. Uh, and if in meditation we can perceive at the level of these higher bodies, this is exactly what we perceive. We perceive we are this sphere of consciousness and the bodies within. So without ne necessarily having to have a psychic experience of the type that I just mentioned, uh, it is a good practice, for example, if you are walking on a park, try not to feel that you are within the body try to expand your sense of presence. We do have a sense of, you know, what we call my personal space. We have like a sense that I begin in a certain place and if you come too close, you are invading my personal space. So use that sense of personal space and try to extend it and try to feel that your presence um, is this, in this sphere. And then when you walk, as I said, feel that you are far beyond the physical body. In meditation, there are techniques in which you can visualize like a bubble around your body and feel your presence there. And then you can expand your bubble more and feel your presence there. And uh, all of this produces a certain, let's call it flexibility in our consciousness, by means of which we really start having a sense that um, that the body is only a very small part of ourselves. And a typical feelings that come with that is a feeling of lightness and expansion and freedom. The feeling of freedom is quite characteristic of beginning to perceive beyond the physical body. Mm. So, you know, if, just to mention one particular practice, this, this practice is quite effective. Um, I, I have an app that um, you know chimes every hour and then I stop for a few seconds and I try to have this sense of expansion. Um, uh, this is something that I have been working for quite a bit and, and it is amazing how you know you can really feel 
an expansion of your being of who you are. Mm, fair enough. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my guests, kind of a quick, kind of rapid fire. Uh, what is your definition of living a good life? Living a life that is not only about me, but is about uh, all of us, because ultimately speaking, we are one. What is your definition of God? God is that um, the sacredness that is in life. I don't believe God is uh, an entity, but God is the sacredness that is in everything that exists in the cosmos. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? The ultimate purpose of life is to realize our divine nature, that uh, we are not this small, limited person, but that we are a, a, a divine, uh, divine consciousness. And we are using this limited person to express ourselves on, on the physical plane. And where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Um, I, I guess the, the best place would be on my YouTube YouTube page because there are many talks there if you are interested in these concepts. Um, so Pablo Sender channel, uh, you can find it there. I have also a website with some uh, articles that I that I written and a couple of books. Uh, and then I, I work in education for the Theosophical Society in America. So I give weekly classes online. So if you want to participate live, uh, search for the website of the Theosophical Society in America, and you will find me there. Pablo, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, we can talk for hours about these concepts. It's uh, We just barely scratched the surface of the meaning of life. Uh, but, I, but I appreciate you coming on the show and, and for all the work you're doing to help awaken uh, souls around the world, my friend. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I, I really enjoyed having this conversation. Uh, it's uh, evident that you know, by your questions that uh, you you are serious and intelligent. And I really enjoyed this kind of uh, podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. I want to thank Pablo so much for coming on the show and sharing all of his knowledge and wisdom with us. Thank you so much, Pablo. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 173. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.